This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. I'm going to talk today about how to feed 10 billion people. Much of what I'll be describing is the result of a commission that I co-chaired with Johan Rockström from the Resilience Center in Stockholm. This was funded by the Wellcome Trust, which allowed us to bring together 35 scientists from 17 different countries, and that brought together expertise from many different disciplines that were clearly needed to take on this challenge. The challenge was great. How can we feed what will be about 9.8 billion people in 2050, a diet that is both healthy and sustainable? Already today, we're not where we should be. About 2 billion people around the world lack key micronutrients. Many millions of children are stunted, and over 2 billion adults are overweight or obese. The obesity epidemic is probably the most conspicuous indicator of what's happening on the nutrition side. We have today about 42% of Americans are obese, whereas back in 1970, this was only about 10%, so a huge increase over time. But it's not just the United States that is experiencing this obesity. This is the prevalence of overweight and obesity around the world. Uh, as you can see on the top, uh, these are the affluent countries, and there's been a steady increase going back a year from 1980. But if we look at low-income countries on the bottom, these are actually increasing uh, in prevalence at an even greater uh, rate. So there is uh, projected to be uh, convergence down the road. This is really a global problem. But of course, we can't just look at the averages. There are huge disparities uh, within countries as well as between countries. Uh, this is showing life expectancy in the United States. In the middle are uh, the white population and the overall population average. Uh, and what's happened during the pandemic. And you can see even before the pandemic, there was a, a decline in life expectancy in all groups, but uh, there were huge differences in life expectancy then. And now uh, the African-American population has lost about three years of life expectancy projected compared to the white population. So the gaps have increased even further. This is happening in many countries, but uh, it's not universal. And that's important because that means that declines in life expectancy are, are not inevitable. These are data from the upper income countries. And uh, you can see at the bottom, the United States has been lagging in life expectancy quite a while, while it's been steadily going up in Japan, both in men and in women. On the environmental side, the challenges are perhaps even greater uh, we've seen uh, increases in global average temperatures from year to year. And what's really troublesome here is not that there are just increases, but there's acceleration. And we're reaching a point where we're entering vicious circles, whereas uh, the world gets warmer, that releases more methane gas from a permafrost from the Arctic Ocean that speeds up warming and this cycle is going faster and faster. So against that background, our commission faced a very uh, serious challenge. And how to address this was something we thought about for a while. Ultimately, we broke this down into four steps. First of all, defining a healthy reference diet using the best available evidence from all kinds of studies. Then we defined planetary boundaries 
using environmental systems, uh, in particular related to greenhouse gas, cropland use, water use, nitrogen and phosphorus fertilizer application, and uh, looking at extinction rates. And then we used a global food systems modeling framework to analyze whether what we identified as a healthy diet could be produced within planetary boundaries. And finally, we looked at strategies to stay within those boundaries. I'm going to use protein sources as an example, since I can't, uh, uh, within this time limit, look at all of the major food groups. Uh, but protein sources are particularly important because our choices among them have great implications for both health and nutrition and uh, climate change as well. Uh, if we look at beef, for example, the, the ratio of polyunsaturated to saturated fat is extremely low. Uh, poultry has quite a bit more polyunsaturated fat, salmon more. But if we really want higher ratios of polyunsaturated to saturated fat, we need to go to plant protein sources like nuts, soy products, and lentils. And we know that ratio is important because it reduces uh, blood cholesterol if we have a higher PS ratio. Our colleagues in Germany uh, took this a step further and looked at the uh, relationship between various uh, protein sources and food groups and uh, cardiovascular risk factors. This is a summary of 66 randomized trials with risk factors as outcomes. These included uh, blood lipids, indicators of glucose homeostasis, blood pressure, and inflammatory factors. And then from the effects of each food group on all of these risk factors, they created a risk score and then ranked the foods. Uh, the best foods were nuts, followed by legumes, whole grains, fish, fruits and vegetables, refined grains, then uh, red meat being lower. These are less healthy foods now, eggs, dairy, and sugar-sweetened beverages, which have no nutritional value. Another kind of study we used uh, was long-term follow-up studies, and our group has been conducting these kind of cohort studies back since the 1970s. The first was a nurse's health study in which we enrolled 121,000 women and have tracked diet since 1980, then uh, identifying incident cases of cardiovascular disease, cancer, and other outcomes, and we were able to control for many potential confounding variables like smoking, physical activity, medication use, and family history. That was all women. So we enrolled about 52,000 men in a similar study starting in 1986, then another 116,000 women in 1989. Again, tracking diet over time, risk factors, and incidences of all major diseases. And I would point out this is the work of many uh, individuals. It's a very multidisciplinary set of projects. Uh, these are data looking at, again, uh, major protein sources here in relation to total mortality. We've combined cohorts. So this is over 130,000 people followed for several decades. And among them, about uh, 33,000 died during this period. So we had a lot of uh, statistical power. And all of these foods are compared to dairy foods. And it's really important to have uh, a specific comparison. Uh, the worst, uh, not surprisingly, was processed meat and eggs. Uh, then unprocessed red meat, fish and poultry were pretty similar to dairy. But if we really wanted to go to low mortality, that meant emphasizing plant protein sources like nuts, legumes, and soy products. And very consistent with what we saw 
looking at the shorter term randomized controlled trials with risk factors as an outcome. So together, that kind of evidence creates a very strong uh, body of evidence to support shifting to a more plant-based topic, uh, plant-based diet for health reasons. But it's not just important to have this ranking. Uh, we really need to look at dose-response relationships to identify what would be an optimal amount of uh, intake of each food group. Here we use uh, the combination of over 200,000 men and women, among whom 13,000 developed incident type 2 diabetes during the several decades of follow-up. And even by just going from the first to second quintile, we saw a significant increase, small but statistically significant increase in risk of type 2 diabetes. The overall relationship was quite linear. So we didn't want to recommend this increment, so we somewhat arbitrarily took the midpoint of this uh, first increment. <clears throat> this corresponded to about one serving of red meat per week. After going through all of the major food groups, we put the data together and came up with what we called the healthy reference diet. And I'll run through some of these numbers quickly. Uh, this meant that uh, there was quite a flexible amount of whole grains that were possible, but what's really important is that they be whole grains, not refined grains. Uh, potatoes have a less advantageous health uh, profile, so we kept that number pretty low, about five servings of fruits and vegetables per day. Uh, dairy is pretty interesting because there are health benefits, and we specified a range from zero to 500, and all the animal source proteins have a possibility of zero because we know a vegan diet can be healthy, uh, but we found uh, this is about uh, one. Uh, this is about two glasses of milk per day at uh, 500 grams per day. If we uh, had the whole world go to two servings of dairy a day, we couldn't stay within planetary boundaries. So we used the midpoint of that range, about one serving of dairy a day. I already mentioned that red meat uh, would be about one serving per week. Poultry uh, better from a health perspective, so about two servings per week. Uh, eggs, about two eggs per week. Fish twice a week, which does have some positive health benefits because of the omega-3 fatty acids. But mostly emphasizing uh, plant protein sources like uh, beans, lentils, peas, uh, soy, and nuts. Uh, fat intake, is, if it's healthy fats, mostly unsaturated fats, quite a bit of flexibility about that. And we kept artificials, we kept out sugar-sweetened beverages and other sources of added sugar low, which would mean about 5% of energy from, pro, from sugar or less. Uh, and even if we go to one soda serving per day, we would be over that limit. That's a lot of numbers pretty quickly, but it does boil down to something actually pretty simple when it comes to protein sources, uh, one plus one, and most people can get that. Uh, meaning about one serving of dairy a day if you like it, and about one serving of other protein sources per day, some combination of fish, poultry, eggs, or red meat. This has been called a flexitarian diet, and it could be that you are a vegan. This is a, a sort of maximal amount, but uh, it does provide a lot of variety for people who would like to have some animal sources of protein in their diet. And that would, of course, be on a base of nuts, soy, beans, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and plant oils. Is this realistic? As it turns out, it's actually very similar to the traditional Mediterranean diet. 
that Greek men were consuming in the 1960s when they had the highest life expectancy in the world. The amount of uh, red meat plus poultry, 35 grams per day in Crete in the 60s, our reference diet came out to be 43 grams of protein per day. So very similar. But these foods can be put together in diets that are very uh, consistent with traditional diets from most places around the world. This happens to be a Vietnamese diet that encompasses this combination of uh, fruits, vegetables, some whole grains, and mostly plant protein sources. But if you wanted some animal source proteins, some fish or other sources in moderation would be fine. So where do we stand today? Uh, if we look around the world, this uh, vertical line here represents the targets that I've described. Uh, but there's incredible heterogeneity if we look across regions. North America, for example, is way over the reference amount for red meat, but Sub-Saharan Africa is way over the reference diet in terms of starchy vegetables. And this is mainly due to poverty diets that where these vegetables can uh, provide most of the calories in a diet that's otherwise quite unbalanced. And what's really important, though, is that most regions of the world are short in terms of fish, vegetables, fruits, legumes, whole grains, and, and nuts. So moving toward a healthy diet doesn't mean just reducing unharmful things. It, it means increasing uh, health-promoting aspects of diet. We did some analyses using three different modeling systems to see how much mortality would change if everyone shifted to the healthy targets that we described. And basically, they all showed similarly that we would prevent about 3 million premature deaths per year, or about 19 to 24% of total mortality by the whole world shifting to that, those healthy diets. On the environmental side, we also looked at a summary of data on life cycle analyses. Uh, specifically here, uh, for example, looking at how much greenhouse gas per serving would be produced for each serving of different food groups. Red meat, I think, not surprisingly, was the worst. And soy and legumes were uh, the best protein sources, along with nuts. But the difference was huge. Red meat is about 140 times greater amount of greenhouse gas production compared to these plant protein sources. Pork, chicken, fish, uh, dairy, eggs, uh, quite a bit less greenhouse gas promoting than red meat, but still these are about 30 to 40 times the amount of greenhouse gas per serving compared to plant protein sources. And fruits, vegetables, cereals all have quite low environmental footprints with respect to greenhouse gas emissions. Putting this all together, looking at greenhouse gas emissions, we found that the planetary boundaries that were defined suggest that, that we could produce about five gigatons per year of greenhouse gas emissions from the food systems. Uh, but by 2010, we were already a little bit over that number. And if we continued on the business as usual track that we're on now today, with more population being added, about 2.5 billion people by 2050, and more meat consumption, we'd be about double the sustainable amount of greenhouse gas emissions. But if we adopted the target numbers that I described, we'd be back just about at the planetary boundaries. And if we improve production methods and reduced waste, we would be under the limits for greenhouse gas emissions, or, which is where we would like to be, of course.
We went through this for the other indicators of sustainability. I won't go through those numbers now, but the point being that we not only need to shift to the, these dietary targets, but also incorporate better agricultural production methods and substantially reduce food waste if we're going to remain within stable limits for all of these other indicators of sustainability. And to put this in the even bigger picture of the IPCC pathway to staying under two degrees centigrade increase, we of course need to fundamentally eliminate fossil fuel emissions uh, used by industry, uh, energy production, uh, uh, buildings, transportation. Uh, and the food sector looks sort of small here in comparison to these other sectors. But if we continue on our business as usual path and we reduce fossil fuel emissions, we'll still not be able to stay within the Paris climate uh, agreement uh, limits. And we're also counting on the agriculture and food systems to have negative emissions. In other words, carbon sequestration in ways that we don't yet really quite know how to do. So to conclude, feeding 10 billion people a healthy diet within safe planetary boundaries is possible, and that will improve the health and well-being of billions of people. This could allow us to pass on to our children a viable planet. Thank you. Hi, I'm Jessica Thompson, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at Yale University. I'm the PI of the Paleoarchaeology Lab, where we investigate the archaeology of our origins. We also do a lot of paleoenvironmental work in the lab. And today I'm going to combine those two themes to talk about the human transformation as we went from environmental managers to environmental damagers. I'm going to sort of frame a lot of this talk around this issue of fire. Fire is really the ultimate human tool. We are the only animals that use fire in the same way that we are able to make it and we're able to produce it and we're able to transfer it. Other animals might use it. They might take it from place to place, like these firehawks in Australia, but it's really only humans that have been able to harness the power of fire and use it as a transformative tool in our lives of our ancestors, as well as the ways in which we've been able to change the world around us. So just kind of starting with how it was that we began using fire, our earliest ancestors who first were able to do this most likely used it for cooking. At least this would have been a primary purpose. We know that this is a really useful thing to do because it can unlock the nutrient density of foods in a way that you just can't do otherwise. When you have more nutrients from the same foods, you have more fuel. When you have more fuel, more energy, you're able to relax some of those evolutionary constraints on things like brain size, for example, which is a very expensive organ. It requires a lot of energy. If you have the ability to gain more energy from your diet, then you don't necessarily have to limit the amount of energy that goes into feeding that big brain. Of course, we know that humans are very smart and as far as animals go, that has been helpful to us as well. And you can imagine this as this sort of recursive cycle in which the larger brains helped us to do even more transformative things to the world around us. We imagine also that fire was a very important tool for the transformation of human societies. There are data on this. It shows that hunter-gatherers, they spend a lot more time sitting around fires talking about different sorts of things, especially social things, than what they do in their normal day-to-day -day activities. By extending the daylight hours, fire was able to give humans and early human groups the opportunity 
to spend that time making those social connections and telling those stories. And that has been an important transformative aspect of how it is that we engage with one another cooperatively. We also know that early humans used fire as a transformation of materials. There are certain types of stone that just perform better and make better tools after they have been heated in a very particular way. A lot of humans like to use red pigments to color things like their clothing or their bodies. And we can transform yellow natural earth pigments into red natural earth pigments through the use of fire. These are things that humans have been doing for hundreds of thousands of years. And they have been instrumental in our ability to kind of start to shape the world around us. But what about when we move beyond those objects that are right in front of us, the food, the tools, the paint, and we think more about kind of shaping the environment? Is this something that early humans were able to do? What I've got here is a map showing you some uh, numbers, and the numbers represent the earliest time in thousands of years for which we have evidence currently of what we might call a, a climate anomaly. So this is where you see a change in the vegetation, which represents the environment. And the vegetation was changing in a way that is out of sync with what you would expect to have happened um, based on climate alone. So an explanation might be that you have humans intervening in that environment in a way that is altering the vegetation and that you can't just explain those changes on the basis of things like temperature and precipitation. So these numbers are definitely going to be minimum numbers. This is only an area of research that is fairly new. And it's exciting to be able to think about how it is that we can find new ways to uncover evidence for the earliest ways in which humans were beginning to manage, shape, and transform their environments around them. You'll also, if you're familiar with the dispersal of modern humans, probably imagine that this map looks pretty familiar to you because it roughly does follow the spread of modern humans too, earliest in Africa, and then spreading out into the rest of the world. So fire has been along with us on that entire journey, and it has been leaving behind a legacy, maybe a, a trail of fire, that is, is really kind of the hallmark of how humans engage with their environments. And that is to say, we change them. So this is not new. Humans changing their environments is something that we have done since we have been human. And then the real question is, what are the consequences of that? And are there ways to do this sustainably? So here's some research that I've been fortunate to be able to, to uh, participate in and in fact lead. And this is in Central Africa in Malawi. And I'm just going to show you a graph here from something we published recently that illustrates this point of the climate anomaly. So you have the blue background and the darker blue represents periods of time when there was more rainfall. When you have more rainfall, you tend to have more trees. When you have less rainfall, the lighter blue, you tend to have more grass. Here we have another part of the graph, which is separate from both of those, in which you have high rainfall, dark blue, but you also have high grass. So what we're seeing is that after 85,000 years ago in this particular part of Africa, in this case study, we go from a situation in which wet periods equal more trees to a situation in which the wet period still resulted in open vegetation, more grass. What's maintaining that open vegetation even though you have enough rainfall to sustain tree cover? We suspect that it's humans. 
that humans are coming into the area in a way that is representing a new kind of use of fire. And in so doing, they're transforming that vegetation. So here's a graphic that kind of illustrates what might have happened. You have high lake levels around 100,000 years ago. And this is something you might think of as sort of the natural state. Then you have a naturally occurring climate change in which the basin becomes very arid. And after that, rainfall returns. However, even though the rainfall has come back in a way that is able to sustain high levels of tree cover, you don't have the trees returning to the same extent that they did during previous natural regimes. In this case, you have humans coming in with their tools, with fire, and they are burning portions of that vegetation in order to create habitats that help them to be able to hunt game. The new grass will attract new game into the area, and you create these sort of mosaic habitats around the region so that you can go to the forest, you can go to the edge of the forest, you can go to the open grassland, and you don't have to travel long distances in order to access the resources that are available in each of those habitats. And that's the power of fire that you can actually use to modify the vegetation selectively, not indiscriminately, in order to sort of suit your needs. So we think we have very early evidence for this in Central Africa, which is a very sophisticated use of fire. And the result is that you have an entirely different erosion regime that, that comes about as a consequence of this. So with this increased burning of vegetation and this increased openness of the landscape, you also have that now anomalously occurring at the same time as quite a bit of rainfall. And the result is a shift in how much erosion can occur. So we suspect that not just the ancient vegetation, but the actual present day landscape is entirely shaped by Stone Age humans. This is one case study that kind of shows us how you can have a situation where as humans become more and more involved in shaping their environments, you also have a series of tipping points that are crossed. These are thresholds after which it's very difficult to go back to the prior state. And it kind of starts to make me think about landscapes and environments as the product of human environment legacies, not necessarily an artificial divide between Stone Age people who were living um, kind of at the whim of their environment. And then after that, you have people who are practicing food production like agriculture, and they're controlling their environment. But rather thinking of this as a continuum and a long-term trajectory in which the scene was really set by our earliest ancestors to transform and control the world around us. And it's at that point that you start to see the most intensive forms of land use of all, and that is food production. The path of food production occurred in many different parts of the world at many different times and in many different environmental contexts, but had similar consequences. They were all built on a legacy, however, of prior land use by hunter-gatherers, and hunter-gatherers had at their fingertips the use of fire that they could use to shape the environment that they were living in. So the pathway to food production represents something that was fairly quick in the overall picture of the way that humans have developed their technologies over time. And what it has done is it has fundamentally changed the relationship that humans have with their environments. So we can think of food production as an extension of this wild resource management and intensification that hunter-gatherers were already using, particularly through tools like fire. And 
then you have a point in time when people begin to take even greater degrees of control over their environments, particularly through domestication. So the domestication of animals and plants is when you start to make them rely on you in order to be able to reproduce. And then they also become more productive for humans. So it's, it's sort of a step above in terms of the intensity, what it is that hunter-gatherers were doing. And agriculture and pastoralism are the primary forms of food production. Not all of these are unsustainable. Horticulture, small-scale small gardening is quite sustainable under the right circumstances. Pastoralism, it seems, was even one of the ways in which some of these early savanna ecosystems developed some of their really nutrient-rich areas. So, for example, there has been archaeological and paleoenvironmental research that shows that some of these iconic savannas like the Serengeti have dense nutrient patches that attract animals. The animals are, of course, what the tourists come to see. And then these so-called natural ecosystems are actually shaped upon a legacy of human pastoralism and livestock keeping, because where humans were keeping their animals and they dropped the dung, that enriched particular areas that now today draw in wild animals. So all of this is connected in ways that were not fully understood and started, until we started to pay more attention to the paleo-environmental and archeological records. We also, if we start to look there in those records, see that there is an extreme sort of stepping up in the extent to which humans are starting to use fire as this transformative tool. So there's this sort of million year long legacy of hominin and then later modern human fire use in really innovative and important ways. But in the last 25,000 years or so, you start to see a shift, not just into kind of changing the properties of materials and, um, and changing pieces of the environment, but also thinking about how you can transform something from one thing into another thing. One of these types of technologies is ceramic technology, for example, pottery, which uh, was actually in its first use decorative rather than functional in terms of pots. But what we see is with the advent of metallurgy, you have a true transformative technology, in which case you are not just changing kind of the material properties of a particular type of resource, but you're actually making a whole new type of resource out of raw materials that you're combining together in really, truly innovative ways. And with this comes a big increase in the scale of human extraction, and of course, the need to power that extraction through fuel. And in this case of iron smelting, this would be things like charcoal and wood burning and clearing and deforestation that can come with that. So we can't just blame agriculture, even though a lot of the very earliest agricultural tools um, were made of iron. But we do see a relationship between these things. When you start to move beyond the more hunter-gatherer model of sustainable land use and targeted burning that is designed to create mosaic landscapes, and you start to move into the human need for more and more land to fulfill their needs for fuel, to fulfill their needs for population centers and for food through agriculture, then you start to see a big change in the relationship between humans and their environments. And the change has been quite sudden. When you look at the long-term archeological and paleoenvironmental record, it's quick. Here's Northern Malawi today, and you can see that it's a fairly anthropogenic looking landscape. There's a lot going on here that has a human imprint. And when we actually look at the very recent part of this time period, so no longer studying the Stone Age, but now moving forward in time, 
we can see that there's been an enormous amount of erosion in this particular area where I do my research over the last thousand years or so. And we can relate this to human land use practices and the advent of agriculture into the area in a really more intensive way than had previously been there. So what archeology span really reveals is changes in the timing and the scale of these tipping points. We know that humans have long been involved in shaping and managing and transforming environments, but we see that in the last thousand years or so, we're really seeing a ramping up at a scale that is completely unprecedented. And in the last 400 years, even more so. So the human story is certainly one of transformation, but we have to ask ourselves, how many more of these tipping points can we actually tolerate in a sustainable way? We know that hunter-gatherers were able to live for hundreds of thousands of years sustainably using transformative tools embedded within their ecosystems and recursively interacting with them. But what are we doing now with this really intensive agriculture and these massive changes in erosion and land use? One of the things that archaeologists have started to pay a lot more attention to is this concept of how it is that we can use the tools available to us to understand what is what is kind of not true about the natural world. In other words, are there really a lot of natural places left in the world and how long have they been natural? What we find is that the majority of terrestrial environments are shaped by people and have been shaped by people for a very, very long time. And I mean thousands of years. So we're not talking about the current situation where we have extensive land degradation and erosion and so on as the consequence of humans coming into an untouched wilderness and then changing it. What we're seeing is a different type of use of land that was already under heavy human influence, but in a much more sustainable way in the past, being transformed into a much less sustainable way in the present. And one of the things that we can start to think about is how we might learn from that. And when we think about going forward, how is it that we can try to use the lessons from the archaeological and paleoenvironmental records to think about ways that we can, we can do it more sustainably in the future? And one of the things that I just want to point out here is that there are a lot of natural places that, again, have not actually been natural places, as in completely untouched by humans, really ever. And the Serengeti ecosystem is a nice example here, because we know that herders have lived there for a very long time. And the archaeological record shows that humans have lived there for as long as humans have been around. So how is it that they were able to sustainably live in those environments so much then? And then how can we maybe model that going forward so that we don't have this kind of conflict between humans and environments, but rather we think about ways that the two can coexist together. And this kind of leads us to the question of what do we do about it? So we're here. This is the point where we are. And we know that it's very difficult to go past into uh, beyond a, a tipping point and actually bring back the past. But what can we do going forward that might be more sustainable? One of the things I think we really need to do more of is think about the tools that are available to us from archaeology and from paleoenvironmental science so that we can really look at the long-term picture of how all of this came about and maybe predict what's going to happen going forward. We have to start recognizing that it's probably a fallacy to imagine that there are 
um, natural places and unnatural places and a hard divide between the two. The reality is humans have been transforming their landscape everywhere they have been. Their environments have changed everywhere they have gone. And that's been happening for hundreds of thousands of years. So in light of that, how can we more creatively think about models that can allow that kind of legacy to continue, but in a more sustainable way? And to do that, it's going to require that we think carefully about the equitable distribution of the kinds of tools, the resources, and the knowledge that we're going to need as a society, as a global society, in order to be able to get there. We know that there are not equal distributions of all of these things globally. A lot of the research that we would like to do needs to be able to be done in collaboration with indigenous stakeholders and with local collaborators in a way that meaningfully takes advantage of the knowledge that they have about the world where they live locally and how it kind of connects to the larger picture when we think about the loss of biodiversity, for example. So these are the sorts of ways in which we might have to reimagine the way we just approach the problem. I think looking at the long-term record of human transformation and using the example of fire is a good way to start. And that can help us as we try to picture a future that is a lot more sustainable than what we have recently seen. So I just wanted to quickly thank all my many collaborators in developing that work in Malawi, and also to thank you for coming here today, for listening to this talk, and for being so engaged with trying to learn more about the human role in environments and the kind of legacy that we have as the planet-altering apes. I want to talk with you today about human domination of the global nitrogen cycle. Now, when you think about the Earth, 78% of our atmosphere is nitrogen, nitrogen gas, N2. So you might wonder, why would nitrogen be a limiting element for life on Earth, which it has been since the very beginning of life? In fact, it and water are the two things which determine how much plant life there is on Earth, and the plant life then determines all of the animal life, including human life. Nitrogen as a gas, has this triple bond between the two end molecules, and that bond is incredibly hard to break. When life first appeared on Earth, the only thing that could break it was lightning, and that generated about 10 terabrams, they're called, of available nitrogen uh, every year. Now, available nitrogen is a form of nitrogen other than N2 gas. It's a form like nitrate, nitrite, or ammonia, that plants can actually take up and use to grow and to make protein. And that protein clearly is needed by the animals that eat them and so on. And then later in the evolution of life on Earth, there were plants called legumes, which are able to break that nitrogen bond because of some bacteria that live in their roots. And so from hundreds of millions of years ago until the beginning of around the, uh, the 1900s, that Earth had a very straightforward nitrogen cycle. This major limiting element that determined the abundance of life on Earth was created by two processes that generated about 150 teragrams of nitrogen coming into Earth uh, per year. And at the same time, there were bacteria that earned their living by consuming this available nitrogen and making nitrogen gas in two. And they would use up about this amount. So you have an input and an output and a certain amount of nitrogen stored in, on the lands of the earth uh, in its ecosystems. That changed uh, with the discovery of a way to chemically form 
biologically available nitrogen from N2 in the atmosphere, from nitrogen gas. And we now make about 115 teragrams of that that we use for nitrogen fertilizer. We grow added nitrogen uh, fixing crops, legumes that give us 40 more. High temperature fossil fuel combustion also can break that nitrogen triple bond, giving us 20 more teragrams. And finally, when we clear land uh, to create new cropland, and when we have fires that do this, we release 40 more teragrams of biologically available nitrogen. So now humans truly dominate the nitrogen cycle. The 150 teragrams that comes in from natural processes, the way the world was for almost all of evolutionary history, has added onto it 215 teragrams more, a 140% increase. And we look at what humans are doing now, increasing population, uh, diets that are getting more and more uh, high in meat, we're going to double global nitrogen supplies again in the coming 50 years. Here is what happened to nitrogen. At the beginning of what's called the Green Revolution, which helped increase food production around the world, which clearly is a very important thing to do. From then until now, we have increased the amount of nitrogen fertilizer by 860%. That is a very large increase. As I showed you, this is a, this is a big part of the, of the more than doubling of global nitrogen, this major limiting factor. And doing this allowed us to increase crop production by about 220%. So think about the difference, 860 versus 220. That means that only about one-third of the nitrogen that we're applying to crops ends up in what we harvest as food. The rest of it ends up becoming a pollutant. And as a pollutant, nitrogen has some very serious effects. I like to describe nitrogen as being the main currency of nature. We know how money influences the human economy. We know what happens when money is made more available, inflation and so on, uh, goes on. Well, the same thing happens when the main limiting nutrient of most land ecosystems is, be, is made much more available because of, of human domination of the nitrogen cycle. One thing that happens is a health impact for humans. Ammonia from nitrogen fertilizer dissolves in the air and it forms, it's a charged particle, it forms what are called nucleating sites that attract other little fine particles to them. And uh, these make tiny little particles you can't see, which are 2.5 microns or smaller in size. These particles, when we breathe, get deep into our lungs, they enter our bloodstream, they go throughout our body. And the diseases they cause of the heart and the lungs kill about 20,000 people, cause a premature death for about 20,000 people uh, in the United States uh, every year, and many more people clearly uh, around the world. So that's one impact of this domination of the nitrogen cycle, but there are quite a few impacts. Nitrogen that dissolves in the air uh, and gets in the air from agriculture uh, has other impacts. Uh, these maps sort of show by the coloring on them how much biologically available nitrogen comes out when rain carry, uh, rinses the nitrogen that has come into the air from agriculture, from farmers' fields, from manure, and so on, uh, when that is rinsed out and deposited on the land. And the, uh, the brighter colors are high rates of deposition in those ecosystems. And you can see what, it's, uh, what it was like in the early 1990s and what it looks like it'll be around the year 2050. The world has these really large hotspots of very high addition of nitrogen 
to what are normally nitrogen-limited natural ecosystems. Here's what happened in the Netherlands because of this. They are one of the warm spots right now, a high spot for nitrogen deposition from agriculture. They had an ecosystem which was much loved by the Dutch people. They're called heathlands uh, that occurred on sandy, nitrogen-poor soils. And because of nitrogen deposition, these very high diversity ecosystems changed into basically a monoculture of an, of an invasive grass. And then a decade or two after the grass was dominant, this area, these heathlands, which have really had almost no trees for tens of thousands of years, just being sandy soil, low vegetation, grasses, and, and heather and so on, is becoming invaded by trees. And this land is becoming a forest, a huge transition. Well, the Netherlands aren't unique. Nitrogen deposition from the atmosphere has similar effects on ecosystems around the world. This is a, a, a prairie in the, in the uh, Midwest United States, tall grass prairie. And the uh, photo on the left-hand side shows prairie, which is not receiving any added nitrogen. On the right-hand side, it shows what happens when rates of nitrogen deposition, like those that occur in the Netherlands, happen uh, in that, in, to this prairie. A single plant, an exotic grass, an invasive grass, uh, a major agricultural weed called quackgrass, invades these systems. It takes them over and it squeezes out almost all of the other species. Very high rates of end addition uh, lead to a loss of almost every native species in these uh, prairie grasslands. Even rates of deposition as low as are happening naturally right now in, let's say, Minnesota, North Dakota, Iowa, and so on. Even those rates cause a 30, have already caused a 30 or 40% loss in plant diversity and the number of plants in these ecosystems. Nitrogen fertilizer from agriculture and nitrogen inputs from other human sources also end up going into, from farmers' fields, let's say, into groundwaters. They go through the groundwater and lakes and rivers and streams into lakes and into rivers, and they flow into the ocean. And there's been many studies of this. If you look at a major river system, let's say the Mississippi River in North America, you can look at all the nitrogen that has been added to its watershed, mainly because of farming activities, and you look at what's coming out. And watersheds for major rivers that have more nitrogen coming in have a lot more that comes out. It's basically, uh, as I mentioned, only about a third of the nitrogen that is put on a, on a farm field in places with intensive agriculture ends up being captured by the crop. The rest of it leaves some of it through the air, but most of it through water, Rainwater carries it into the groundwaters, into rivers and streams, and from there into the ocean. Into the ocean, it causes what are called dead zones. They were named that by fishermen who went out to places they used to fish, and they found that all the fish were dead. There were none there to catch. The dead zones are caused because these nutrients lead to a burst of growth in algae in the ocean. And then those algae, uh, after a burst of growth, run out of nutrients, they die. Bacteria eat the algae, and when the bacteria eat the algae, they also use up all of the oxygen in the water. And so you have water now that has no oxygen in it, so fish can't live. The fish die, and you have these big dead zones uh, that form. And not just the Mississippi. Every major river on Earth that drains a large agricultural area now has a dead zone where that river hits the ocean. Here's some pictures showing this. These came from a colleague and friend of mine, Robert Howarth. A photo of the bottom of the um, 
Gulf of Mexico in an area away from the inflow of the Mississippi River and an area where the Mississippi River is coming in. You can see one very clear water, uh, normal uh, um, marine plants living on the bottom. The other one, very dense algae, a lot of dead algae being decomposed. No oxygen in this that water. That's a part of the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. Besides being a, uh, a pollutant of freshwater, marine, and, and terrestrial ecosystems, uh, added nitrogen from human domination of the nitrogen cycle is a major greenhouse gas. We all know that carbon dioxide has been increasing in the atmosphere because of fossil fuel combustion. Uh, we may not all realize that nitrous oxide, which is formed by bacteria in the soil uh, from nitrogen fertilizer, is an incredibly potent greenhouse gas. Kilogram for kilogram, nitrous oxide is 300 times better at capturing and holding heat on Earth than is carbon dioxide. And when you look at what's happened from 1980 until now, the increased carbon dioxide is causing, as we know it, uh, warming of the Earth. But in addition to that warming, there's 14% more warming caused by nitrous oxide from fertilizer and from fossil fuel use. That nitrous oxide, that 14% added warming is actually is quite a bit of warming. Every year, agriculture uh, is about 10% of all the global warming that occurs on Earth. And more agricultural warming occurs not from nitrogen, but from methane, uh, from uh, ruminants uh, and so on. In fact, agriculture as, as a total even if we got rid of fossil fuels, we have to change agriculture in major ways to prevent the world to exceed the Paris Accord goals of limiting warming to just two degrees Celsius. So why is so much nitrogen being released? What is it? Why do we do this as humans? Well, we clearly need to produce more food to feed 8 billion people. But the way we're using fertilizers right now turns out based upon a large number of recent studies around the world is excessive and highly wasteful of these fertilizers. We can add much less fertilizer and actually get the same or greater production of yields than we do right now around the world. So we're releasing too much because we're basically over-fertilizing. Second, we are demanding farmers produce a lot more kilocalories of crops than we actually need to eat. In many countries, richer countries, only about a third of the calories that are produced as crops end up going to the actual human diet. The other two-thirds feed chickens, pigs, uh, cattle, etc. And in the United States, even more than that uh, uh, goes into feed our cars. We make biofuels out of corn. 800 million people around the world are malnourished for lack of calories. And we turn many more calories than they need into biofuels which actually, when you look at their whole life cycle, are worse for the environment uh, than gasoline. Hard to believe, but they actually are. So we have this excessive demand for crop production. Rich nations demand 8,000 to 10,000 kilocalories per person per day of crop be produced to give them the diet they want to eat. Whereas people in poor countries only have two to 3,000 calories uh, produced to, uh, to get the diets that they have. We are excessively consuming calories and excessively consuming animal meat in ways which harms our health as well as the environment. And basically, farmers don't really know how much fertilizer they should use. They don't know what's actually best for them or best for society. 
And right now we lack policies uh, that could enforce a wiser use of fertilizer around the world. So in summary, nitrogen is the limiting currency of nature, especially uh, in terrestrial ecosystems. We are adding so much more nitrogen in human domination of the nitrogen cycle. It's a bit like having airplanes fly over uh, a city and drop $100 bills constantly from the sky. Money is a limiting currency for humans. Nitrogen is a limiting currency for nature. If humans could go out in their backyard and get more money by picking up $100 bills every day than they got from a job, they would quit working that job. In nature, the species that are efficient at using nitrogen, a trait that has been important for 3 billion years of life on Earth, um, lose their, their superiority in the system and they are squeezed out, competitively squeezed out by plants uh, that were once rare, uh, that are very inefficient, but grow quickly and can shade them out and, and outcompete them when the major limiting resource of nature has been lost by nitrogen pollution. The solutions we have in front of us are all workable. We know how to do them. We know they work. We know that healthy diets mean less meat consumption. I mean, less uh, and avoids excessive, uh, unnecessary uh, consumption of calories and, and the weight gain that comes with it. That helps this problem. Efficient use of fertilizers helps this problem. Having farmers grow another crop called a cover crop when, when the main crop isn't growing helps hold nitrogen into the soil and keep it from leaching into the groundwater. Putting buffer strips on the lower edge of a field helps capture the nutrient and retain it in the system. Instead of growing monocultures, growing more diverse mixtures of crops actually give us more food per acre and do it with less input. And then if we also reduce our fossil fuel combustion, which is clearly necessary for uh, preventing global warming, that also uh, helps reduce the nitrous oxide uh, that goes in the air uh, and also uh, contributes to global warming. So there are well-known ways to greatly decrease human domination of nitrogen uh, and its cycling on Earth. And if we adopt those ways, we will have a much more sustainable Earth to live on. Thank you very much for your uh, for listening to this talk. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.